we're raised up with music that is really the epitome of craftsmanship in music. Uh, orchestration, harmony, counterpoint. You know, we've got these master musician models in our in our DNA. And when we begin to make our own efforts of creativity, we can't help but to compare ourselves, you know, unfavorably against these things. But it's so important just to get in there and make a sound. And as Thelonious Monk said, believe in your sound. You get in there and believe in your sound and see where it wants to go. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and since the 1970s, I have been a fan of the music of the Paul Winter Consort. I've purchased many of their recordings, LPs back in the day, and audio CDs when they became available. Paul Winter's music is unique in that he often records in sacred spaces, wilderness areas such as the Grand Canyon and man-made structures such as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. I even had the opportunity once to get very close to the ensemble during one of their performances, and the memory of that experience is still fresh in my mind these many years later. It happened like this. I was performing at the Three Rivers Arts Festival in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The festival takes place in July at Point State Park next to downtown, where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers meet to form the Ohio. All day the weather was threatening, and as evening came on, the rain began to fall. The field in front of the main stage, where the audience would sit, was a soggy mess. Not surprisingly, two of the groups headlining the festival canceled their performances. But not Paul Winter, even though he would have been paid like the others. No, he had come to play, and play he would. Only the large stage was protected from the rain, so the concert moved as far back as they could, invited people to come up and sit on the stage and enjoy the show. There was room for perhaps 50 people, and I found myself in the very front, sitting on the floor of the stage, because there were no chairs, while Paul and his group played some of the finest live music I have ever heard. So when I set out to record interviews for the Rosin the Bow project, I contacted Eugene Friesen, the cellist in the Paul Winter Consort, because I love his music and wanted him to be part of this effort. Eugene has won four Grammy Awards and teaches at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. And that's where we met up in October of 2017 for the interview. It is October 16th, 2017. Who would have ever thought we'd be alive in this year? <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. And I'm, I'm here in Boston at the Berkeley School of Music, and I'm about to interview... Eugene Friesen. And Eugene's a, um, a man who's brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, including myself. That's why I decided that he had to be on the list of people we talked to. Very uh, honored to be so. Thank you, Joe. Well, so um, I always start with someone's personal story. And uh, having a, a, a long-term interest in family stories, if there's any connection in your family to music, even going back, in fact, the further back it goes, the more interesting it gets as to how these things come to us. But uh, so tell me a little bit about your family, where they're from and so forth, and if there was music. Yeah, both my parents were born in Russia. They were both born in separate Mennonite communities. My father was born in Siberia, uh, my mother in Ukraine. And uh, my father showed an early interest in music. You know, their life was really centered around the church. So he began being active in church as a little boy. And then when they emigrated to Canada, eventually he got his uh, way to a music education uh, in Winnipeg. And then he got a, a degree from the kind of Royal Conservatory of Canada by mail from uh, this Toronto-based music school. And so uh, he uh, kind of educated himself as a musician the best he could, you know, uh, living on a farm in Canada with his family. My mother... Um, what instrument? He was a vocalist, yeah. Yeah, my father was a vocalist, um, a choral conductor, and uh, a teacher, voice teacher. 
And so he, um, his life was really in service to the church in a way. He ended up teaching at a small Mennonite college in the town where I grew up in Fresno, California. And so music was all around me and mostly music in, in the church, although they loved listening to the Metropolitan Opera on Saturdays and would gather the whole family around the radio to the listen Texaco. to broadcasts. Exactly, Texaco, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your mom? Her and family? my mother was his kind of star soprano. She sang in every choral group he ever put together. And, uh, and they sang a lot of duets also in church and small ensembles with other people. How about going further back? Any other stories? Not that, that I know down? of. You know, not that I know of. I don't know that there's. Uh, I know that there's music before my dad and that family. They're really farmers for generations before that. But you grew up in a family in which this idea of music as a spiritual force was just what you breathed. Exactly up. right. And so uh, the first first orientation toward music was as music as a sacred, you know, sacred music. And, um, and that's really stuck with me, I've, I've noticed. I still, you know, I think it's why I resonated so strongly with uh, Paul Winter's vision, you know, the, the band leader and sax player that I ended up playing with for uh, much of my career, is that uh, there seemed to be kind of a sense of context for that that was, that was really drawing people uh, within and uh, especially playing uh, in some of the sacred spaces, uh, the, the great cathedrals of the world, and then with Paul Winter also discovering some of those sacred spaces in nature also, like some of the beautiful canyons and grottos in the Grand Canyon. We went to Lake Baikal in Siberia, and just uh, kind of feeling the, the special atmosphere of these places, we noticed brought something special out of our instruments. And just, I don't know, when you were there in Siberia, did you have this sense of your dad having been born in that place at all, or that Definitely. your roots go there? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, this power uh, place. I remember uh, uh, several trips to through Russia, and one being in uh, the Novosibirsk train station and seeing the town name where my dad was born, you know, on one of the destinations of a train that I could have jumped on and, and gone there, so it was amazing. So your path is growing up in this family in Fresno, uh, definitely a farming community in the Central Valley of uh, California, and uh, a heavily industrialized farming area now. I mean, I don't know how far back that went, but I know now you know, there's so much pesticide use and chemicals and so forth. I mean, this idea of tremendous yields these, the, this land provides, but there's been an approach to it that a lot of people now are questioning. And in many ways, I think of our imaginations like that, that we're, we're, with all this entertainment we have that's so highly produced, we're stimulating the imagination and getting a high yield of something, you know, responsiveness or something. But it seems like as soon as you turn off that, so that, that fertilizing process, you find an exhausted imagination left over. So I'm very interested in this idea of what is the sustainable imagination. I just, I'm throwing this in kind of out of sequence, but uh, this combination between the arts and farming really interests me, mm. how we deal with soil and how we deal with our imagination. Mm, yeah. Because we grow things from both of them. No, that's, that's a great point. We can definitely talk about that. Uh, you know, farming is not something I have really knew much about. My uncles were farmers, but uh, I grew up in a very suburban situation and uh, didn't really know that life so much. And in fact, being really influenced by the media, especially you know, the music that I heard as a teenager, you know, the Beatles, Peter, Paul, and Mary, these are, these are influences that made me want to be a musician myself and, and made, me, uh, made me realize that I, I wanted to spend my life with music. That's the music that really excited me. So you mentioned uh, nature. It wasn't really until I started taking some trips with Paul Winter when I'd graduated from music school, that I had these kind of face-to-face -face encounters. I think prior to that time, I had never spent more than two days outdoors at a time. You know, my life was really inside walls. You know, it's, it's where my uh, instrument sounds the best, is inside a building. And I spent uh, many hours a day for years on end in practice rooms, in small little rooms, just playing the cello. 
So to go to Baja, California, to have uh, a kind of eye-to-eye encounter with uh, the gray whales down there, to go in the Grand Canyon, and to be outside for weeks on end in the presence of this amazing river and, uh, and the history of the native peoples in that place and, and the rocks, uh, really profoundly life-changing. So going back again to this Mennonite tradition that you, your, uh, your parents sang within the Mennonite church and were involved in that. Uh, and the Mennonites are similar but not the same as the Amish. But it feels like in that religious tradition there is a, a skeptical view towards technology or emerging technologies that people haven't had time to sort out. And rather than just adopt it because it's the new thing on the block and we're with it today, there's a kind of a resistance or a let's, let's, let's live with this a little bit. Let's test it. Maybe it's not such a great idea. And I'm, I'm thinking you've, you did ultimately pick an acoustic instrument, a very traditional instrument. You're talking about the, the Beatles. It could have been an electric guitar. You know, you could have been just right. wailing away on a, on a wah-wah pedal or whatever. No, it was Eleanor was Rigby in here and that great chugging cello in there. And, you know, <laughs> but, wow, maybe the cello could be cool. Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> okay, yeah. So how did the cello first come as the instrument? When, when uh, was that choice made? Actually, my dad chose it for me. You know, when I was uh, 10 years old, I didn't really know what a cello was, so he asked me which instrument I wanted to play, and I kind of pantomimed playing a trombone, and he just turned pale and said, here's what you ask for, a cello. (laughs) So he kind of tricked me into it, but... uh, So he shows up at the house one day with one? Is that how it works? uh, We we, we were able to get one through the public school. Okay. Yeah, public school had instruments. How vivid is the memory of the first day when this thing came home to live in your house? I mean, this is a large instrument. Yeah. Like a fiddle, I mean... Right? I mean, it's a bigger instrument. Yeah, it's an impressive piece of furniture to bring home. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't that much smaller than me, really, at the time. So, And I do remember taking it to school. It's the imaginary and, friend. Yeah, exactly. Right, my new friend. And I do remember uh, schlepping that to school in a, a little red wagon. You know, ah. was, that was the best way to get it back to school. And was there sort of an association among your other friends, this was kind of a nerdy instrument. I mean, that was the case for some time with the violin. And I know of kids who would you know, hide their violin in some other, in a guitar case, so people wouldn't know they were going to their lessons after school. But how did yeah, you feel I never, about it? I never had that. I mean, I, I don't think I was proud of it or ashamed of it. It was just seemed to be a natural thing. You know, I, just, I, I took it on with all the other uh, burdens of childhood. <laughs> It's a project. Yeah, that's great. So you're playing on this cello. It's, I imagine it's not a distinctive instrument, no, that first one. No, it's a plywood one. cello. Yeah. You know. So you're playing this instrument, and you're now progressing, making some progress. When's the first real cello come into your life that, as an instrument? Uh, my father took a sabbatical from teaching in 1968, and we spent six months in, uh, in Vienna. And, uh, and you were how old? I was 16. So uh, we went over there, and I didn't bring a cello with me. It was a long trip. We drove cross-country from Fresno to New York and then flew to Luxembourg from New York on Icelandic air. And uh, when we got to Vienna, I wanted to take cello lessons, and we went to a string shop and found a, a decent cello that uh, my dad bought for me. And so that was really my first cello of my own that was a nice instrument do you remember the maker or? no i don't huh? yeah. how long did you have it i had that cello gosh probably for at least five years yeah at least five years it, uh, it was just a couple of years before i went off to music school that we replaced it with a more a more artist instrument and what's been the most significant cello to come along Probably the one that I play now, which was made by um, Douglas Cox in Brattleboro, Vermont, you know, where I live. My, my bow and my cello are both made in Vermont. Yeah. So my bow is made by my former neighbor, David Sullivan, and uh, Douglas Cox is, uh, is a wonderful instrument maker in Brattleboro. I met him briefly at the oh, yeah. Violence Society of America conference. He was sure. down there, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so what do you like about this particular instrument? I, I like the um, 
the kind of uh, a presence, um, the kind of responsiveness it has, especially in the low register. You know, one, one of the things, uh, playing the music that uh, I have learned to love to play is really playing rhythmic in a very different kind of way than a lot of classical music calls for. I mean, there there is, of course, a lot of very, very springy rhythmic music in the classical tradition. And yet playing with drums requires yet a different kind of responsiveness from an instrument, where really when the bow hits the string, it needs to be right there and not a gradual you know, opening of the sound. It really wants to be accented on the beat. And so I just found these instruments, uh, especially Doug's instrument, to be very, very responsive that way. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, um, do you know where he sourced the wood for that particular instrument? I think it's uh, Italy. Oh, okay. I think even though it's made in Vermont, the, the top is uh, made uh, from wood, wood from Italy. Yeah. yeah, probably from the Vale de Fiemme. The I mean, the Don't valley know. where Stradivari got it his could be. spruce. I mean, he's, he told me the story of finding that wood, of going into the woods and just knocking on dozens of trees until he found the tree that oh, he did was that. the sound. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was able to choose it from a living tree. And then it, it sat in his shop for years before he made it into an instrument. And how much time did he have to know it was going to be an instrument for you? Oh, I don't think he ever knew that. I mean, he, he made the instrument and... Uh, I don't know that it had a previous owner, but it was sat in his shop for some time before I before I bought it. So tell me about that uh, that experience. You go into the shop, and uh, did you know he would have an instrument you wanted, or you were just shopping about and saw this cello? And God, good question. It's a long time ago now, and uh, this instrument is so much a part of our family at this point that I don't really remember how we came by it. But certainly going to his shop was a big part of that. And, you know, I was trying out some other instruments that he had there. And, uh, and this one was the one I wanted, even though it was not one I could afford. Uh, so somehow, Doug, in his neighborly way, made it possible for us to, to get that. I love this idea. It's a family decision. It's a family experience. Yeah. I mean, to purchase an instrument... That costs some real money. Indeed. And yeah. will impact the livelihood of the family. And exactly. Sitting over the kitchen table and really having a heart to heart with a significant other. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, cello freeze, and, you know, it's got a plane ticket. It's strapped in next to me, so it's got the same last name. <laughs> ah, that's a good way to put it. Let's take a break now in our conversation to listen to Eugene play a duet that he composed with Paul Haley titled First Ride. Like Eugene, Paul was a member of the Paul Winter Consort for many years, winning five Grammy Awards as both a performer and a composer. Thank you. 
You uh, offer a, uh, a cello camp that you, it's kind of small numbers that come up to Vermont. And I was reading about that and the way you uh, basically present it to potential musicians as to why this would be such a good idea. And to talk about this, how this evolved, this camp, and kind of how you view its value, its uniqueness. Well, I mean, big picture, I mean, I think nothing short of this is going on with our classical tradition, and that is that improvisation is being reintroduced into our tradition after an absence of some 300 years. And uh, people are really hungry to develop a personal repertoire. They want a distinctive repertoire to play. And they can see that it's not always out there. You know, they, they may not want to commission composers or may not have the resources to commission composers. They want to play in configurations of ensembles that are unique from the traditional configurations. They want to integrate uh, more popular idioms and styles and folk music from different places. And uh, with the familiarity we have with music from all over the world now, you know, this is, we live in a really big village. And, uh, and so our, our musical diet is also incredibly vast. And when we begin to play and when we begin to create, these are the sounds that are coming out. They will reflect the musical diet that we've had. You know, we are what we eat in that respect. So our... Uh, the sounds that we make will convey the experiences we've had in life, in music, and, um, and our, it's all in the sound that we make and, and the styles that we gravitate to. So a lot of players know that they want something new from their instruments, from their lives as musicians, but they don't exactly know how to get there. It requires a really different way of practicing and a different approach, a different way of spending time with your instrument, a different relationship with your instrument, really. And so that's what we do at this camp. It's just uh, I can share with people what my prescription for them would be, depending on where they want to go. And so we do these kind of, um, as you say, camps for small numbers of musicians, you know, and 15 is the maximum number we work with. And more often it's, you know, somewhere between 7 and 15 people. So we really get to know each other. We, we support each other well. There's time for individual attention. We jam. We play concerts. There's a lot of discussion. And it's a place for people to really kind of recalibrate, you know, where they are with their relationship to their instrument and to develop a way of practicing that will lead them to someplace new. What instruments are they playing? Is it all cellos or...? Uh, you know, I, I do mostly strings in my Vermont workshops. So there's one for kind of all different bowed strings. Um, and we've had harp also and mandolin at those workshops. And then I love focusing on the cello also. So there's, there's at least one that's devoted to the cello each summer. Yeah. And do you have any, uh, well, not restrictions, but is there a... a sort of direction that they should leave their cell phones and other distracting technologies back in the other part of their lives? When you know, we don't, we don't always have to speak about that. You know, sometimes with the younger players, that's something worth mentioning. It's something I talk about here at Berkeley with my, with my students, you know, that our rehearsals are in a, a non-smartphone zone. <laughs> <laughs> they're really, uh, they're, they're not allowed to... Well, none of us are allowed to use our phone in, in rehearsal or even have them on during rehearsal. Yeah, there's a uh, church in Spain. I'm sure it's not the only one, but I read about a priest who uh, was so irritated. And this is some years ago, let alone. Things have progressed mightily since then of people checking their emails or looking at their messages during the service. So he put in a jamming device so that uh, they simply wouldn't to work enforce in the that. church. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was... Uh, that was smart in its way. Yeah. Because, again, if we're entering or hope to enter, and I think you're, uh, I guess the word would be uh, unapologetic about speaking in these really fundamentally spiritual terms. You're not careful about that. I mean, there, there's a kind of, you know, living on the East Coast, you don't 
talk about that stuff very much or it's considered I don't know why it's considered this way but it's considered to be uh, as if not trustworthy you know people would talk about you know, transcendent experiences or uh, shifts of consciousness and finding this place of peace all that kind of stuff you know well, I mean, that. you know, I think I think New England is, uh, has become a big part of the influence on me, and the influence of Emerson and Thoreau are are very big for me here. You know, the works of uh, both of those gentlemen are really radical and dangerous. Way? And dangerous, great. <laughs> yeah, In they're dangerous. Way? Well, they're they're kind of iconoclastic. Uh, it was Emerson who, uh, in his essay, Nature was uh, really counseling us to put down the kind of uh, temples that our forefathers built, you know, that we really need to build our own temples, and that our relationship with God, with the cosmos, needs to be from a personal experience and not something that was written about by people who came before us. So that is a radical idea that we really open our eyes and our ears to what's going on and make our own conclusions from it. Of course, we can be informed from what happened before, but what's happening now is different than what happened before, and we're different than people who lived here before. Our conclusions are really valid and important for the kind of evolution of, uh, you know, of who we are. And Thoreau took it another step by just really seeing the mirror of his own nature in nature, you know, with that kind of eight-year moratorium he had on Walden Pond, uh, he spent a lot of time trying to understand the divinity as, uh, as a parent in nature around him, and he found it. I think that this is the great challenge of our particular moment in history. You look at something like the United States Constitution, um, this idea that we should revere this document above all things is quickly leading us possibly to our destruction as a republic. <laughs> it's a document written in the late 1700s mm-hmm. and where it took, you know, three months to get to Congress from certain places and the way that the voting structures are done. And now we're, we're saddled with a political leadership that uh, threatens not only our republic but very possibly our, our existence as mm-hmm. a species and the planet itself. Mm-hmm. And yet, the idea that we would improvise mm-hmm. under these circumstances, yeah. and by coincidence, the, the, the great improviser out there that the young generation has flocked to is a Vermont senator named Bernie Sanders. <laughs> now, go figure that, you know? So there's some, there's some deep understanding, if, if it's even not known consciously, that a great change has to take place. Hmm. And maybe, again, if we can rot that change in that internal world of the imagination and, mm-hmm. and where the soul goes for its uh, reju- rejuvenation, mm-hmm. right. uh, we can do this externally, too. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, music has been that, you know, as a way of, um, of really renewing and getting fresh information, really. And often when you improvise, I mean, obviously... When you start, you don't know where you're going and what's, what's going to happen. It takes a certain amount of faith. So. And, and where does the imperfection come in? I think I'm a great believer in the, the value of imperfection. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. We oh, my God, this. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One time I mean, I, this, is, this, is a, you know, this, this is one of the huge roadblocks for us classically trained players because we're, we're raised up with music that is really the epitome of craftsmanship in music. Uh, orchestration, harmony, counterpoint, you know, we've got these master musician models in our, in our DNA. And when we begin to make our own efforts of creativity, we can't help but to compare ourselves, you know, unfavorably against these things. But it's so important just to get in there and make a sound. And as Thelonious Monk said, believe in your sound. You get in there and believe in your sound and see where it wants to go. When I was in my late 20s, I'd heard some marvelous musicians at, at a concert, but later I happened to have a close encounter with these same individuals. And it was not a pretty picture. I, I, I wasn't very fond of them as human beings. I, you know, we all have our days. But you liked their music, but then after Not only you met did them, I like their music, 
their music had truly, in my mind, transported me mm-hmm. to these higher realms. So it was the music of the heavens to me. Yeah. It was God's music. So to, to then see them later in a you know, social situation where they were boors and they were you know, just people I would have not hung out with <laughs> uh, created a real crisis in my mind because I was not willing to say, oh, I was duped. It really wasn't the music of God. It was, and yet played by very imperfect human beings, right? And only by luck or the hand of destiny— for some reason, a book by C.S. Lewis came into my hands at that time, The Four Loves. And I think it was at somebody's house. I just picked it up. And uh, I re- read a part of it where he makes a very clear distinction between what he calls God-likeness and nearness to God. And he said, you know, if God is all the absolutes, then God would be absolute beauty, absolute musical ability, absolute wealth, absolute charisma, that would be the nature of God. And certain people, for some reason, and it's a great mystery as to why this person and not that person, they reflect some aspect of those absolutes. And we're like moths. I don't know if he used that word. That's mine. But we're like moths to a flame. We believe if we get near that, we are near God somehow. So it'll like rub off on us a little bit. And he makes the case that, in fact, the, all the ancient teachings, the true wise teachings, said it was, in fact, almost the opposite direction in which nearness to God became possible. And he used a great image of somebody walking through the uh, forest, and they come to the edge of a cliff, and they're trying to get home. And they look down the cliff 200 feet, and there's their house. And I think they can smell dinner cooking, and they're hungry. But if they take one more step in that direction, off the cliff they go. So it appears they have to walk away from their destination as they work their way down the valley and up to their house. And so you have this in folklore a lot. You know, Jack is the, the one least uh, apparently able to accomplish the great quest. His older brothers are stronger and braver and all this, but they fail. But imperfect Jack gets through. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the gospel of Christ is the same thing. You know, the thing that is discarded, that has, he has no wife, he has no political power. He's killed at the end. It's not a pretty mm-hmm. story, but it's a story about getting near. And this is where I think imperfection is is the opening to something, hmm. not mm-hmm. the thing that is to be overcome all the time towards wow. some goal. Wonderful. Wow, I love that. Yeah. 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 How can I riff on that? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, there's this moment of... Uh, the other way it kind of expresses itself in our lives is to me, I mean, the thing I draw my most... The greatest uh, encouragement from often is serendipity. The thing that happens that just feels like it was meant to happen or there's a special quality to that coincidence. And so any stories along that line, you know, I would imagine touring with Paul Winter and, and many things you've done over the years, there are those moments where things just kind of lined up in a funny way or this led to this. Oh, definitely. Gosh, with Paul Winter, I mean, it goes right back to the very first time I met him in Fresno in 1973. He was coming to do a concert with the consort and um, was also doing a improv workshop. And uh, I was practicing in my practice room and uh, had, didn't have the money to go to the workshop. And the chairman of our music department, whose name is James Winter, who is the husband of my cello teacher, Pearl Winter, found me and said, you know, you should really go to this workshop. And I said, well, I'd love to. And, uh, and I didn't move, and he realized that I didn't have the $2 to go to the workshop, so he gave me that 2 bucks, sent me to the workshop, and I had a blast playing, improvising with the consort in that workshop. And uh, Paul Winter took down my name, and uh, I expected him to call me, you know, the next week to go on the road with him. But he actually called five years later. <laughs> he called five <laughs> years later, right when I graduated from music school. And uh, it was just perfect timing. Changed my life. And yeah. Can you remember, like, where you took the call, how the call where it was going on literally that day, the call arrived? Oh, definitely. It was, was you know, it was on. circuitous. The, the, uh, the number he had, you know, was long gone, so he had to do a bunch of sleuthing to find me, and he ended up going through the old chairman of the music department. He remembered his name because his name was Winter. So <laughs> <laughs> they found me, yeah, through my family, et cetera. Of course I remember. It was a big phone call. 
Now, you weren't married at this point? or mm-hmm. Okay. And so what did he say? Come on the road with us. Let's have some fun? Yeah, he said, um, you know, I'm looking for a cellist. I want you to come over to my farm and let's just do some improvising together. Where did he live? In Litchfield, Connecticut. And I was oh, in New so Haven, Connecticut. Oh, Strangely. Oh, oh yeah. okay. Because yeah. I thought you were still in Fresno. Yeah, no, strangely. I was just 45 minutes away, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Connecticut. So that all worked out. Yeah, unbelievable. And what is it about playing with the uh, soprano sax that you really, with your cello, is anything about that particular relationship, those two instruments? Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, it's not the most intuitive um, pairing up. And I think a lot of the sound that I have now has been developed trying to make it work with his saxophone. You know, there's a certain way that I use vibrato and play without vibrato, for example, that I found a much uh, more pleasing blend with the saxophone. Uh, The other thing that's unusual is the keys that he gravitates towards. You know, he loves playing in the key of D-flat which is just a little bit unusual for, you know, we can't use our open strings, the open A and D string, or just can't use it. So that's been interesting over the years, just to develop some facility playing in the key of D flat. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that these instruments, uh, not being fretted, you're always dealing with playing truly in tune whatever key you happen to be in, that there are always these slight variations that makes it in tune. But I understand the soprano sax is one of the most difficult instruments to play in tune. I don't know why that is, but there's something in the mechanics of it. it it's, it's a bear. So you're both playing, struggling always to get to that right intonation, I would think. It's like in milliseconds. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. This idea that you, you, know, you work it out, and every time you hit the note, you're on the note. That's not what's going on at all. It's like every time you hit the note, there's this slight, very fast... Adjustment. Adjustment going on. And I find that very interesting because I think outside of the music world or people that have really worked with these instruments, they don't don't understand it that way. They think you could just hitting these notes perfectly Mm -hmm. and how can you do it? There's no frets. Right. uh, Yeah, well, actually, I mean, intonation is extremely subjective. There, There isn't really an absolute test for intonation. In fact, they did this test with uh, symphonic musicians, you know, highly trained, accomplished classical musicians, and they couldn't agree on what an octave was. (laughs) Now, an octave seems like it would be pretty obvious that you could tell if it's in tune or not, and with a dozen, uh, you know, highly trained musicians, they could not agree what note was really in tune with that lower octave note. So here, I mean, when, when, when we play with uh, other string instruments, we have a very relative sense of intonation, and everything we know about um, that goes out the window when you play with a piano or you are playing with MIDI instruments, which is all kind of very tempered intonation. And most people think that the way the piano is tuned is just this catastrophic series of compromises, you know, to make all the all the keys equally out of tune <laughs> with each other. That's one way to think of it, yeah. And when string players play together, you know, we naturally kind of stretch things a little bit to make it sound a little bit more natural that might reflect the overtone series and just make our instruments ring in a certain way that is very different from a piano tuning. A string quartet will have a very different kind of... Um, philosophy about tuning than you know than playing with piano and a lot of people are now using these electronic tuners i know in the fiddle world and it's so convenient because you know if you're in a jam and you you step into a jam nobody's going to stop long enough for you to tune Mm -hmm. so you look down there there's the a there's the and I imagine that's uh, respecting guitar players too because guitar players tend to use tuners a lot and with the fretted instruments, you know, they have less flexibility with tuning than, than the bowed instruments. Yeah, and I understand that people have been, like, testing one tuner against another, even the same tuner from oh, the same wow. company, well, finding they're go. not registering the same. I hadn't heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We talk, talked to Jody Stecker, a great fiddle player, and, and uh, somebody thought a lot about these things. And he, and he did his own test, and he said, you'd be absolutely surprised. Yeah, oh, they're all over the That's over the map, yeah. relatively speaking. Gosh, yeah. but they're pretty handy, you know. And that opens up that whole world of of auto tuners and click tracks mm-hmm. and things that are like knocking on the door, mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, let me get you to that God likeness thing." Mm-hmm. Because isn't that what you really want? 
Don't you want to step over yeah, that threshold? It's really tempting, you know, when you're when you're making a recording that's going to be a legacy item. You hope, you know, to really make it as perfect as you possibly can. I totally understand that, yeah. and yet it can also really rob a spontaneity out of a performance and out of a production by making things overly perfect in that way. Well, you mentioned before the. Um, Something about industrial revolution. I don't recall exactly oh, yeah, the, in the uh, context you were mentioning that, but it brought to mind something for me because I've I pondered what happened in the evolution of music or so-called classical music. You know that really took us away from this more creative involvement that I think a lot of our forebears had musically. You know, three hundred plus years ago. And I think it has something to do with the Industrial Revolution, something to do with the standardization of instruments, particularly pianos is what I'm thinking of. You know, back, um, back before the Industrial Revolution, I think there were a lot of piano makers, you know, all over Europe, and people had, people had really unique and personal-sounding pianos in the way that we have personal, unique-sounding guitars and stringed instruments today. We don't know what Beethoven's piano sounded like or what Brahms' piano sounded like. But there was something in the fabrication of those pianos and the standardization of the pianos um, that I think began to take over the kind of model of classical training also. And maybe it had to do with preparing players for a more specialized career playing in orchestras, you know, where they had to compete against a kind of an international standard uh, to get these jobs in the symphony orchestra, so that the training also became very standardized and became very competitive. And in the process, it seemed to just kind of devolve, or rather the, the, uh, the creativity and and the real awareness of the elements of music and how music theory works as applied to our instruments was really lost in favor of trying to kind of uh, leapfrog to be a better quote-unquote player, you know, who could get a job and get financial security in, a, in an orchestra. It's almost like a military model of training. Everybody has a very standardized kind of training. You could also be the... Uh sort of the shrinking of the world because of transportation. Right. If I understand, if you go back to like Italy, each town, the instruments were made to match the organ in that town. Mm. So whatever the pitch, there wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a standard A. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, things were being written in Venice that were fundamentally at a different, you know, their A was a different pitch right. than it would have been in Milan or in uh, you know, Genoa. And so uh, you had this going on. It was very localized. But then as people began to travel, then they they were instruments that could be taken some other place and performed some other place. Now suddenly you're you're having problems Mm -hmm. because just the engineering of the instrument. And a little bit later, the railroads are really what standardized time. Up to that point, you could have been... 15 minutes, 10 minutes, right, 3 minutes right, off right. in every little town. It didn't matter. By the Course. time you walked to the next town, you were at that time. And before that time was really controlled in in large part by the church. Mm-hmm. When the church bell rang, that was telling you it was that time. The only clock in town, maybe. The only clock in town. Yeah. You know, so that, that gave the church a lot of power. Uh, how about they that? They could tell you what the time is. Yeah. It could stop your work to pray, whatever. And... Uh, yeah, so I think you're right. And there, yeah, we did interview a, a fellow at the uh, University of North Carolina whose expertise was on the early uh, recording of violence, the earliest recording. And he said that many of the people who were noted uh, soloists of the period uh, who recorded themselves on wax cylinders or whatever it was were appalled by how to them they sounded out of tune to their ear. Mm-hmm. or their tempo wasn't as solid as they thought. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, everyone who'd come to hear them was getting something fundamental from this experience. Mm. But they heard it, and oh my gosh, it's not right. It's not right, yeah. And wow. it started really, I think that accelerated this kind of standardization you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, how about that? 
Well, it's certainly true that the experience, a live experience of hearing a performer, there's something much more going on than simply the, the vibration of the sound that's captured in a, by a microphone or by a, a recorder. There's something being transferred there. There's something in the energy. There's something in the, the psychic transference of the, the mind of the performer or the heart of the performer that is really hard to capture on a recording. So that makes perfect sense that those early performers, having heard their performance, wouldn't recognize you know, their sound practically because they were listening in a very, very different way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I love this kind of, you know, trying to understand what is this magical thing we're dealing with. And yeah. now we're back to this idea. What indeed, yeah. You're performing in these spaces that are communicating all this information back to, right. you know, off the canyon walls or yeah. know, from the, the highest few, parts of the cathedral. A few years ago, we were, we were on tour in uh, Japan, and we visited this uh, amazing museum in the mountains above Kyoto, the Miho Museum, designed by I.M. Pei. At that point, this museum was just a few years old. Uh, extraordinary just temple of architecture but it was also filled with uh, kind of spiritual art from all over Asia uh, an amazing collection and every gallery had a very different architectural quality to it and a different kind of um, um, kind of feeling in it because of the collection in the gallery too and uh, I did something I'd never done before I asked somebody in the museum, could I just bring my cello in from the bus and just try it in here? You know, I was just curious about it. And, um, and they said, yeah. So I took the cello in there, and it really sounded amazing in, the, in those acoustics. And something about the quality of, uh, the kind of emotional quality in each of those rooms also seemed to bring something new out of the, out of the cello. And so we, uh, we got... Um, permission to come back to the museum to actually record there. And we spent 10 nights in the museum recording all of the different galleries and, and to, to really explore that whole phenomenon about how, how the different rooms would bring something different out of the instrument in our improvisations and performances. I think there's been a lot of story lore around how certain instruments have a certain voice and quality and history and soul to talk about the spaces themselves we were just in ireland for a month and my wife and i at one point were on uh, the barra peninsula and there somebody said oh just above the town here there's a stone ring there's many of them in ireland but one of the old stone rings and we drove up and it was just a field you know there were cows eating grass and there was nothing there you could just walk right over to it i had my fiddle i took my fiddle out and i stood in the middle of the ring and you know, maybe I'm susceptible to my own romantic nature, but, uh, you know, I was looking out over the bay and the ocean and imagining the Irish that were forced to emigrate, to leave, and I started playing some slow airs, and uh, I don't know, to me, there was something with me there while I was playing, something coming up through the ground, yeah. and it was friendly, but it was it was there. It was another participant mm -hmm. in the music, Yeah. and why can't we believe that anymore? Why have we told ourselves that this is nonsense? I think most players do believe that. I think players yeah. do, yeah. And I think that maybe that's the message. You know, a lot of people now, and we'll finish on this, because uh, I think it's a huge question, you know, is how relevant is this music or this activity that we do, which is often, when you put the, the CDs aside, the legacy projects, is ephemeral as anything could possibly be. Ultimately, we're just moving air. And somebody was talking about the physics of it recently and says somebody did some calculation. It's a remarkably small amount of air that we do move. <laughs> playing these and instruments. yet it's so important. Everywhere and you go on the planet, people got to have it. <laughs> got <move>, to <laughs> have it. They got to move this air. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also agree that it's just great to have a segment of our world who is really uh, relishing beauty and responding to beauty and reflecting beauty and and uh, and love and pleasure and happiness and uh, so these are the things that music has brought to me and those are the things that that um, that I I'm most kind of fed by in the music that I listen to and uh, I think that that's 
brings so much pleasure to being alive, and I think it's just important for our species to experience that regularly. To stay in love with the world. Mm, yeah, and to really love beauty and to be fed by beauty. Can't top that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. <laughs>